Well, you've, you've done that thing again where you've asked us both the same question. <laughs> yes, you're, you're right. It's a good tip. I think I'm done with preamble. How are you with that, Aurelio? I'm, I'm fine, thank you. Yes, I think we're, we're good. good to go. You've got a voice for radio, Aurelio. You sound a bit like Vassos Alexander from the Chris Evans <laughs> Wafer Show. It's, uh, that, that bodes well. Welcome to the first Escape Pod, uh, the new podcast from Escape Technology. I'm Jason Jenner, and I'm Commercial Director at Escape. Uh, today, we're going to be talking about remote working, uh, what it is, what technology is involved in remote working, and how studios and freelancers can can better implement and execute remote working environments. Um, this is obviously a particularly interesting topic, given the, the current conditions uh, under which we're all working at the moment with the pandemic crisis in, in full flight. Um, we'll need some help for this. So uh, by the magic of Google Hangouts, I'm joined by our Chief Technology Officer, Mr. Lee Danskin, um, and our Research and Development Director, Aurelio Camper. Um, I guess to kick off then, um, Aurelio, could you just explain to me, you know, what does that term really mean? How do we define what's meant by, you know, um, a, a remote working scenario? Uh, so if you consider the sort of the standard approach, which is I, as an artist or operator, I'm sitting at my desk uh, and historically I would have a workstation under my desk. Uh, so I'm, I'm in sort of close physical proximity to my workstation. Uh, I'm plugged directly into the workstation. Um, so r- remote working can extend from that idea to... Uh, basically being sort of physically distant from my workstation. From that perspective, my workstation could be uh, located in a machine room uh, in the same building as me, in which case I'm, I could be considered to be working remotely. Uh, it could be located in a machine room in a different building. Uh, or alternatively, it could be uh, located somewhere in the cloud. It could be a virtual workstation in the cloud. So really, it's, it's this idea of just uh, going about your normal sort of activity, your normal creative activity, where you're generating content uh, using a workstation uh, and you're not necessarily close to that workstation. So in, in effect, the, 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 the user of the workstation and the workstation are in two separate locations. Indeed. Yeah, and presumably that could be, I mean, it could be the case that, you know, uh, a customer has you know, a, a batch of rack-mountable workstations that are in a server room on floor four, you know, and their artists are on floor two, you know, connected remotely. That's equally valid as a remote as a remote working deployment. Obviously, in, in this current situation, we, we consider remote working to be uh, normally somebody sitting at home, uh, but it, it is equally remote, yes. Yeah, okay, great. Talking about remote working, that means different things to different people. And whilst it's a hot topic currently with the um, with the pandemic restrictions, you know, it's something that's been around for quite some time. Lee, do you think you could give uh, us a, a sort of concise history of of what our our kind of experience has been with remote working, you know, leading up to and prior to the the pandemic situation? We've had remote working in some shape or form for the last you know fifteen years, um, twenty years even. We've got to a point now where people started to do remote working. In, in an early in an early fashion, it's been accelerated by the pandemic massively. But we, we've been using ro- remote working in different shapes and forms for some considerable time. Um, 
in past lives, we've we've worked with VPNs and transferring data, which when things were all PAL resolution and small, that, that functioned very elegantly and, and made things quite simple. Um, but as, as time's gone on and obviously our data sets have increased and actually moving data around uh, is hard work period, that these days, um, we, we're trying to work with more elegant techniques of moving pixels rather than the data, uh, which allows us to be a, a lot smarter in how we work. Okay, Lee, can you talk a little bit about the different um, the different types of technology that feed into a remote working um, conversation? You know, I mean, I, I, there's, there's clearly more than one solution that we might use um, to either move data or move pixels. Um, and what's what's common? What are the common technologies that we're currently working with? So um, there's there's two main technologies when we come to moving pixels. A lot of, a lot of people will have tried remote desktop or team viewer and things like this, which uh, or even log me in, um, which are more basic versions of, of an enterprise solution. Um, both are very valid for you know small periods of just logging in and checking something and doing something quickly and easily. But to work on it all day and to function with it as if you were functioning on a normal machine, that's where all of that breaks down. There's two primary um, versions of the software for moving pixels, uh, and that would be uh, RGS, or now Z Central Remote, from Hewlett-Packard, which uh, is an excellent solution. Uh, and, but there's also uh, Teradici's PC over IP um, protocol, which allows us to take you know multiple desktops and 4k tests up to 4k desktops uh, and make those available across the internet uh, as, a, as a full working experience and um, just to pick up on something that you said there Lee are, are RGS and um, and Teradici um, technology are they are they both using a form of PC over IP um, protocol no um, they're, they're they're sort of slightly different RGS uses uh, an h264 compression uh, algorithm Rhythm that um, runs on an NVIDIA NV encoding chip uh, that sits inside uh, of your workstation. So RGS consumes small amounts of uh, your machine to deliver this remote experience. Uh, Teradici comes in two forms. Um, it can um, utilize a card, a remote workstation card in the machine, or also it can utilize the same NV encoding chip, but using its own protocol, which is PC over IP, which has been around for 20 years and has matured quite heavily and is probably one of the most mature uh, in compression streaming pixel algorithms out there. Uh, and obviously you're talking there about, you know, a mixture of software and hardware technology um, being, you know, used to deliver the, the same out, outcome, which is a, a remote user experience. But are there are there particular considerations or preferences with respect to whether you use a, a software or a hardware deployment? I mean, what, what drives those choices with customers currently? We've seen some interesting things uh, in recent times with uh, VPN restrictions. Um, so VPNs at the minute are sort of the Achilles heel of the whole network infrastructure type remote working solution that everybody's been trying to do recently. So, you know, we, we've got large enterprise customers that are actually struggling with their VPNs because when they were bought, they were designed to go one way only, which is pretty much out, not 
in. Um, so, uh, and right. the, the, the inside of things was very much, you know, designed for a few very compute or load intensive situations, not thousands or hundreds of users all trying to hit their internal storage at the same time. So, so VPNs and the firewalls that people have implemented were designed for totally different use case for for essentially going out to the internet not loads of people coming into their offices uh, and that's where something like um, the software implementations um, especially with Teradici and the cloud access manager that they have in place allows us to bypass the VPN and allow a lot more performance and a lot more network traffic going in and out of the situation, but obviously not transferring any data in any way, shape or form. Okay, so I mean, you've you've touched on a few things there, which I think it would just be interesting to unpick slightly. So, in in, the, in talking about remote working, you know, we've you know so far really we've talked about the user being remote, um, and uh, you know, by which I mean, yeah, you know, the, the the user is separated from the house or the home infrastructure somehow. Um, so, a common example at the moment is is a user working remotely from a studio uh, under the sort of lockdown circumstances that we're all currently enduring. But what about if the infrastructure itself is remote, I mean, if we um, I'd like to put this to Aurelio, actually. So, Aurelio is um, has has quite a bit of experience with with, with cloud deployments, and I think Teradici obviously folds into that as well. Um, Aurelio, could you could you give some sort of outline as to as to the sort of more cloud specific or or you know um, that kind of use of Teradici where the where the infrastructure is perhaps remote as well as the user? Uh, certainly, but to to a certain extent, it's um, from a user perspective, it feels the same with the remote working. The goal is for the experience to be identical to the experience you would get if you were sitting in the office. Uh, so, to a certain extent, on a daily basis, the artist doesn't really need to know uh, where the equipment is located. The The supporting technology is the same. So, uh, we tend to favor uh, Teradici PCOIP. Um, one of the advantages to locating the equipment in the cloud uh, is the ability to uh, very rapidly uh, increase uh, the number of seats you have in the cloud, um, or in fact, decrease the number of seats you have in the cloud. Um, but the experience is the same. Okay. Um, so uh, just, uh, this is a question for, for I think, both of you really, but I'll go back to Aurelio first of all. What... Um, just talk a little bit about security because I think uh, customers will be listening to this um, talking about PC over IP streams, use of the cloud, use of remote infrastructure and desktop. Um, typically, our customers now more and more are having to work to or within the parameters of studio or client security um, uh, stipulations, TPN, MPAA, etc. Could you could you speak a little bit about about how we broach that particular issue? Certainly. So, so interestingly, one of the advantages of having your infrastructure located in the cloud um, is the fact that you remove all the requirements needed in order to satisfy uh, any sort of stringent security requirements from a, a physical perspective. Uh, so nobody has physical access to any of the infrastructure that's in the cloud. Um, unlike the situation where you, in your office, you may have your workstation under your desk, uh, which from a security perspective 
adds adds a certain vulnerability. Uh, the machine is there and physically accessible. Um, additionally, the uh, cloud infrastructure stuff is is based on the same sort of technologies that, that banks are using. Um, so these things are secure by design uh, and can be made doubly secure. Um, so there is there is there is a, a strong ethos around security and cloud um, historically. So if we are using a, a cloud service provider, it doesn't really matter which one. You know, the, the, everybody knows the big ones. Uh, Amazon, Google, um, Azure, Microsoft. I mean, does it throw the security onus, the use of a cloud infrastructure? Does that throw the, the onus of the security to some extent onto their infrastructure? Certainly. I mean, they provide a set of tools, uh, and inherently, those set of tools. Um, are secure. Uh, you you can set up a cloud uh, system that is insecure, uh, but it's then it then becomes your responsibility. Aurelia, just picking up on something you said there, you you referenced um, that you might consider setting up an insecure cloud environment. What what do you mean by that exactly? Uh, not not that you might. Uh, it's this: if you are inexperienced, you may. Right. Okay. Um, so so it, it it is a tool, uh, and as such, it can be used uh, wisely or or badly. Um, so obviously, we have the experience uh, of setting up secure environments, uh, and in fact, have developed a tool uh, to to assist uh, with this kind of setup. Right. Okay. So it's more a question of you know good practice rather than there would any there would necessarily be technical or or workflow reasons why you would choose to to run with a you know an open sort of non secure uh, sort of cloud deployment. Uh, exactly. It's it's yeah. it's down to it's down to uh, experience and in fact that's probably one of the issues uh, that sort of prevent people from adopting cloud early on is that it is a technical challenge. You have to be quite proficient in all sorts of technologies and terminologies uh, in order to spin up a cloud infrastructure. Uh, and so from that perspective, if, if you are inexperienced, then um, there is the possibility that unwillingly uh, you would set things up in an insecure manner. Okay, so could we? Could you just run through some of the ingredients there? Because you you mentioned there that you need to be you know au fait with a you know perhaps a small group of technologies. I think perceptions often is that the cloud. Um, I mean, if you're using a sort of you know um, for for want of a better phrase, a kind of a fire and forget service where you just you know send a file to a remote site to be rendered and it fire something back at you uh, you know i think that's deemed to be or perceived to be relatively simple but if you want a more uh, granular and flexible control over your your pipeline and the way that you're using cloud resources i think the perception is sometimes that that can be complicated um you know could you give us a, a nice overview of of what the constituent parts are technology wise in terms of spinning up a cloud infrastructure using it delivering a, an experience a remote experience to a user you know i mean i know that teradici is in there somewhere but it's not that you know there are other ingredients aren't there uh yeah so you you've, you've touched upon the the idea that there you can apply web services to a wide range of problems at the simplest level this moves away slightly from the remote working idea you can use cloud infrastructure just to enhance or augment the compute that you have currently uh, and from from that perspective there is a minimal amount of technology uh, and technical understanding you require it's it's the normal stuff it's it's network protocols 
its firewalls, its security gateways. As as you grow in complexity, um, then obviously that suddenly kind of expands uh, the requirement that it puts upon you from an, from an understanding perspective. Uh, and, and being able to sort of spin quite a complex infrastructure up uh, in a secure fashion and in, in a timely fashion. Okay, so let, let's talk about um, about hybrid scenarios for a little bit because I, I think you know we talked about the cloud there, and and you know we started off talking about perhaps more traditional Teradata and RGS deployments. So, Lee, perhaps you could just. Talk a little bit about some of the some of the particular problems that that we're faced with. If um, if a customer's requirement is to have a mixture of of you know a, a mixed usage of of technology that they have on premise and technology that they might be using in the cloud, um, where do we go with that? What are the first considerations? What, what do we need to look at? And what's what's the path to success? You know, in that regard. As soon as we discuss hybrid workflows, then um, there's key critical infrastructure that needs to be in place for uh, that to be successful. So this is uh, one of the reasons that um, a lot of the time the the setups and infrastructures that Aurelio just mentioned are, are what we would term born in the cloud. So completely self-isolated and allow us to spin up, you know, complete virtual studios, if you like. Uh, as soon as we discuss hybrid, then there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to be in place to enable those workflows to take place. So first and foremost, um, having a single internet connection is something that just doesn't fly in that scenario. You have to start considering your connections to the internet in a very different way. So first and foremost, a data connection specifically to the cloud provider that you're more interested in working with. Each one has their own direct connection to the cloud. We often see with sort of fire and forget and render services where a lot of people actually spend more time uploading their data to the site than they do actually do rendering it purely because the internet connection that they've purchased or have been using in the past was bought for that very purpose, internet, not data transfer. So therefore, we need to start to look at those direct connections into the cloud provider and having a separate internet connection for internet and separate pipes for a direct connect. We also then have to look at how we are handling data transfer between the two locations. The simplistic version of that would be to mirror a folder that is on premise with a folder that is in the cloud. That is the simplest solution out there. There are absolutely huge problems with that approach and workflow, um, especially if you're trying to do something along the lines of, uh, a, a, let's take something simple like burst rendering, where I just want to spin up extra render nodes, but obviously my my data transfer is out of a window that would take too long to get the data to the internet. So I need to put the data into the internet to actually do the rendering. Uh, at that point, something as simple as that, if I was to make uh, a pipeline where I'm generating lots of temporary data, um, then that temporary data will get synced back to your on-premise storage. That means you're going to get charged egress. So 
all of the cloud providers are very clever in the fact that anything that goes into the cloud is completely free. So that's not a problem. But as soon as we want to take data out of the cloud, we get charged for the pleasure of taking data from their facilities. That's where a sync in that mode really becomes a really bad, bad problem, especially if you've got a more advanced pipeline where you might be generating AS files or something along those lines. An AS file is great for rendering the frame really efficiently with Arnold, etc. But at some point in that process, you don't want those AS files being transferred back to your on-premise solution. We suffer from the, the last man writing wins. So if there's a file on-premise or a file in the cloud and someone writes to both locations, and then the cloud one gets synced back, the one on-prem is going to be the one that's destroyed. So there's a lot of issues with working in a hybrid scenario. And, and that's where we need to look at much more intelligent storage solutions that allow us to push and pull on demand and are actually configurable by the workflow so that we only push data up that needs to go up. We only pull down the data that we actually want at the end of the process. I suppose where we pair things down to a more simpler, um, a simpler concept of remote working, though those that that's where you'd advocate. You, know, you move an artist, you make an artist remote, and what you really what you're really doing, therefore, after that, it's just moving pixels rather than moving data. Because actually, would be fair to say that everything you've just described is inherently a problem with moving data and sharing data between different pools of infrastructure, be they on-prem cloud, you know, cloud storage on-prem, storage on-prem render, cloud render, etc. Whereas in a, if we're talking just simply about remote user working, then we can avoid all of those problems with just clever techniques to to you know use PC over IP, RGS, you know, Teletech, et cetera, and move the artist to, you know away, separate the artist from the infrastructure. Exactly that. I mean, that's that that is the definition of why we move the pixels, not the data, because there's always issues with pathing, with you know something missing, something forgotten, some artist has left something on his desktop that's not part of a mounted drive or there's all these numerous little workflow issues and gotchas that you know fire and forget renderers suffer from um, and yeah if, at all points wherever possible giving the artist remote access into the infrastructure wherever that infrastructure might be is the most elegant solution for this. Otherwise, I'm transferring it from my home machine, which is working on a local you know, Windows C drive or a Mac internal drive that I've then got to reconnect all my paths, whether it's a Premiere file and I'm trying to find all my footage. Did I transfer it all? Have I got the right footage in the right place? All of those issues can be eliminated as soon as we make sure that the artist is just looking at that infrastructure, that data, where it is. Um, absolutely spot yeah, That all sounds fairly painful. Sounds like that all sounds fairly painful. You wouldn't want to do that unless you had to, but really, I think if the goal is, you know, get people, certainly under the pandemic scenario, you know, get people working remotely so they don't have to travel to an office where infrastructure is based, then, you know, ideally, I think if I understand you correctly, what you, you know, it's preferable to have everything in the cloud and have a, a sort of a born in the cloud or fully hosted in the cloud solution for those artists or, you know, a remote distribution where they're just consuming pixels from a home or a house infrastructure. Absolutely. It's without a doubt, you know, we don't measure data in the VFX industry in megabytes. It's more in gigabytes. Well, you know, we're verging on the gigabytes, terabytes, you know, um, 
issue. Um, if we've got a lot of 4K footage, then we can start looking into terabytes of data. And, and that's just not something that you can move elegantly you know, around the internet. A lot of people will use these wonderful internet calculators to give you a rough idea of how long it will take to get you know, X amount of data from one location to another location. The problem is, is that they forget to factor in file size, file type, network load. You know, you can do some simple maths using an internet calculator that will give you two terabytes uh, might take X hours to go up. But when we actually look at that data, you can't flood the network unless you're doing intelligent workflows. So, you know, moving data is the hardest part of the problem. Moving pixels now is actually the simplest part. Right. Okay. Um, so, so just just kind of going back to um, to some of the, the discussion around particular types of just remote desktop uh, delivery. Could you you know give us a bit more uh, details? Should we get into the nitty gritty a little bit about Teradici uh, versus RGS um, and you know pros and cons? I mean, I, I think they're both good solutions. We've we've worked with them both. I'm aware of that. I, I mean, you know, are there instances where you prefer one over the other, and then perhaps um perhaps it also a little a little thought on you know hardware version or hardware deployment versus software deployment i mean i mean let, let's be brutally honest uh, i mean rgs comes free with every hp workstation well you say you say it comes free it's <laughs> it's a hidden cost in in that workstation price <laughs> i wouldn't say strictly speaking there is, there is a there is a small cost attached to it but um but yes i know what you mean a customer perceives it as being free because that, that, that's you know, they see great point, yeah, yeah. And that's, that's, I'm splitting hairs, you know. It's uh, a good hair to split because you know, as 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 the end user, we all see it as free, and it's like, yeah, I've got a workstation, yeah. and fortunately, I've got RGS has come with it. So yes, you're quite right; it is embedded in the price of there somewhere. But um, you know, because if you buy it independently, right, it's a cost, right? You can absolutely, buy absolutely, I mean, absolutely, people, yeah. People very rarely do that because most people are using a, as you say, an embedded workstation copy of that software. But actually, if you if you want to utilize it for more artists than you have workstations, then you can go to HP and purchase independent licenses. And I, you know, as you know, and there is a cost attached to those. So it's it's more it's more that it's a cost that people don't see rather than that, that, that it that it doesn't have one, as it were. But um, anyway, sorry, I disrupted your flow. No, absolutely. That's, no, it's spot on. Everything you're discussing is correct. I mean, RGS as a standalone solution, you know, um, it, it is very valid. And they've only just recently released their broker. Uh, and obviously a broker mm. for, for anybody out there that's wondering it. So a broker actually just, you know, is a, is a smart way of connecting a user to the end device, wherever that might be. You know, RGS can be brokered by, you know, things like LeoStream. Um but their own broker has just been released. Um, the, the, the issues with RGS... Uh, there, there isn't one really. Um, we, we want to be able to, you know, start using RGS without a VPN. Uh, at the minute, that's kind of a requirement that that needs to be there. So, as a software solution, you know, I don't really want the VPN in place if I can. The only other downside to RGS is that it, it's actually a very heavily compressed streaming protocol, which is fantastic because obviously it uses a very small amount of bandwidth. But the downside to that is, is that I need quite a beefy processor to uncompress that 
at the receiver end. So that that's one of the advantages of something something along the Teradici lines, where we can utilize what we would call a zero client, and a, a zero client has no operating system, just a piece of firmware inside of it that you essentially plug monitor, mouse, and keyboard in, and that allows us to connect to either a software or hardware uh, sender, uh, which would be in the workstation, wherever it might be. You know, when we're looking at that, uh, you know, RGS, yes, brilliant, fantastic, but I do need quite a big decompression system. Whereas Teradici, as I say, zero client, a lot cheaper. It also has hardware and software. Now, you know, the hardware version allows us to do some quite clever things in the fact from security standpoint, in the fact that I'm connecting to a totally separate IP address uh, from the data. So, whereas software versions of Teradici and RGS, essentially I'm connecting to the workstation. Although I am only sending pixels, I am on that network that is connected to the workstation. Whereas with a Teradici remote workstation card, I could VLAN the entirety of the, the, the workstation cards totally separate from the data and the workstation itself. Okay. And um, really just just to sort of touch upon this whole broker issue again can you expand a little bit on on the use of brokers for remote clients i mean what i mean is there a is there a, a tipping point at which you need a broker um uh, and then beyond that you know what again w- with respect to using cloud infrastructure particularly how does that sort of fold into the to the setup there so so just to backtrack a little bit so and i think lee touched upon this a little bit before so the, the purpose of a broker is basically to assign a, a, an artist to a workstation or uh, multiple workstations or different workstations um so the, the broker controls who has access to what from a cloud perspective uh, brokers are probably more important in a cloud environment because in a cloud environment, you're going to be sort of creating and destroying workstations and other forms of servers uh, on a more regular basis. Uh, so there is a less obvious sort of one-to-one correspondence. Um, historically, if you're sitting uh, at a workstation in an office, um, historically, you consider that to be your workstation. Uh, there is a one-to-one correspondence there. If you're spinning up infrastructure in the cloud, um, the infrastructure may be there for a couple of hours, a couple of days. It may change. Uh, so you you may not always be using the same workstation. Uh, so the use of a broker becomes much more important in a in a cloud-based scenario. And when you when you refer to destroying workstations, which obviously sounds like a fairly dramatic uh, approach, <laughs> um, what you actually mean is is a workstation is is kind of fully expunged from your cloud infrastructure. It, it's no longer there, and and you know occasionally you're spinning up resources that you then remove utterly at, at some later point. Yes, and, and the purpose of removing infrastructure is is to minimise costs uh, when you're uh, operating in the cloud. Um, that, that's one of the sort of um, Barriers to entry. People uh, historically have felt that cloud, um, the costs in cloud are difficult to control. Um, there, there are two main ways of controlling your cloud uses cost. One is to switch um, infrastructure off if you're not using it. Uh, and equally, if you're not using it for a long time, 
uh, just destroy it completely. Uh, and then you, you're not getting charged at all. And what about, um, uh, we've uh, obviously plenty of our customers, you know, artists are, are needing... <laughs> Are needing very very good performance from you know peripherals that they might have at the desktop things like Wacom tablets. I mean, are there any considerations with respect to um, to which of the solutions you might choose to deploy uh, where, where where things like Wacoms are concerned? Um, Wacom tablets they're they're super super intolerant of latency at the best of times. When when we can have a connection that's direct to the machine itself so in the idea of having a zero client or a thin client the wacom actually you know can appear to be locally terminated and then bridged through so essentially it it would look and feel to the artist like there is absolutely no lag on the wacom in some respects in that instance um but when we start to introduce software clients then there is a a, a small USB pass-through stroke bridge that's going on in the software that can start to introduce more latency. The further that latency goes out, the zero client allows us to do remote pointer emulation on the device. So therefore, as I say, even a mouse will feel completely natural to the end user because it's actually talking to the little zero client or thin client and then only doing those translations post so that it sort of semi-hides any latency. Um, whereas in the software clients, they'll often, they can't do that local pointer emulation. So so there's a when you say the software clients, you mean the software version of Teradici or you mean, you mean something like RGS? Yeah. Both. So RGS, you know, um, essentially is a software client period. You know, they don't have a hardware implementation that they could put on the receiver end um, so does that mean does that mean that the the software deployment of a so if we if we had a Teradici remote artist that was that was set up using a software deployment so um, software only are, are you saying they're more susceptible to yes. latency and, and interruption on the on the Wacom and on the sort of keyboard mouse experience uh, they, they they possibly are yeah. yes because there's yeah. that emulant emulation of pass through. Even on their local, you know, whatever that those guys are using at home, yeah. you, you are you are running a piece of software. Whereas with Teradici, we can implement a, a zero client in there, which is a physical piece of hardware that's, you know, all it does is the decode. The USB is plugged into that device, so essentially, you, you get a, a slightly better experience potentially um having a, f a physical device means that we're not doing the the transfer between what's on the machine that you're running that software client on versus you know a, a dedicated device okay so um aurelio this is probably one for you i mean if we just go back to the cloud I and mean, we, we talked there about some of the variations in in experience with with wacom and and the latency that you know that can that can be managed um uh, well, that is managed differently depending on whether we have a software or hardware deployment on the on the remote graphics deployment. I mean, are these restrictions the same if you're if you're working from a cloud infrastructure or working from a cloud workstation? I mean, how do you contend with those problems in that scenario? Uh, so, so generally, the restrictions are the same. Uh, when you are spinning up a facility in the cloud, you have the advantages of being able to locate it close to your work. Force. Ideally, it should be as close as possible. So if your workforce is predominantly based in London, then ideally you should be spinning up your cloud infrastructure in a London-based DC. Uh, if that's the case, then sort of um, 
latency times to a London-based DC, about one or two milliseconds. Just for comparison, sort of latency to a data center from London to, say, Dublin uh, would be about 12 milliseconds. Um, 12 milliseconds is still within sort of tolerable use case for things like a Wacom tablet. Uh, once you get above sort of 20 milliseconds, um, then people start getting a sensation that the Wacom tablet isn't quite behaving as it might do. Uh, so, yes, any, anything below 20 milliseconds is kind of acceptable from a Wacom tablet perspective. Uh, I think just to cycle right back around to the beginning, you know, <laughs> Uh, maybe one for you, Lee. If we, if a customer comes and uh, you know and inquires as to a remote working setup from us, you know, in sequence, what are the sort of three or four main big questions that you need answered before you can start to devise the right solution for them? It, it, it's it's the how many, how much scenario. How many remote users are we looking at? You know, um, what type of workflows they want to enable uh, in that scenario. And then there's, you know, they're, they're sort of like the two critical artist sort of friendly ones that we normally would worry about. You know, if, if you're talking of, you know, sub eight users, then, you know, you might be able to work out of your office premises. But if you're suddenly talking about, you know, remote workers around the country, then a cloud solution makes actually more sense in that scenario. Um, but normally key questions are, you know, what size internet pipe are we talking about? You know, what infrastructure do you have on premise to allow us to, to, to make that workflow work? You know, they're the, the, the two main critical things, I think. Sorry, just to um, cut in on that one. I think there's there's one question there that that I think even I you know find useful to try and figure out sometimes when I'm talking to people. I think you know in terms of a, a company that or a customer that has a you know a standard sort of business broadband connection rather than what we might call a, a data pipe, a point to point um, uh, provision. Um, is there a limit in terms of what a connection of that kind can support in terms of um, remote Teradici or RGS users? I mean, what, where is the where is the cutoff point? Our usual sums are somewhere between 20 and 30 megabits a session, if you like, for a single monitor setup. If you've got a standard 100 meg uncontended line, so you've got 100 meg in and 100 meg out, and the, the trick is to make sure that you do have the in and out matching. The other one is an uncontended line as well, so that it yeah. is direct and you you get all of the bandwidth all day long. But at, at 20 to 30 megabits, you know, if you've got 100 meg, then you could quite happily do three or four guys on that out of your offices. Obviously, in a, in a, in, a, in the perfect scenario, 100 these days is actually quite, you know, quite small um i would be expecting you know a minimum business bandwidth you know to be somewhere about the 500 mark as a minimum nowadays um as a standard internet connection at that point you know you can put some quality of service or quas on that connection you could you know 200 of that could do eight guys out of your local session but the other acid part of this is that Obviously, what firewall you have in place also will dictate what throughput you can get on your internet connection. We often see people who get one internet connection and then upgrade it, but don't look at what their actual VPN firewall throughput is. 
and often it isn't as high as what their actual internet connection is capable of. So there's little gotchas there that you just need to be aware of when you're you're, you're deciding whether you you know you want to put stuff out of your local premises to the remote working infrastructure. And the other thing is is to check that ISP because another big benefit of going to the cloud and putting artists there is the fact that the hops or the amount of jumps they've got to go from a remote worker's home account to your office. Normally, on average, you'll see about eight to 10 hops from a, a what's home. A hop? what's, a, what's a hop, Lee? Sorry, for those oh, that don't know. No, that's a good point. A hop is um, going through essentially some sort of gateway or switch or some sort of connection through. So at the first hops, your own your own router at home. You know, that's the first point. Then from that router, I have another connection from there to my ISP's provider router, wherever that's got to. Yeah. Then I have to go through the ISP's internal network to get out onto the internet uh, or out to that. So each each stop, check, or change in IP address uh, and the routing that's occurring at each location is a hop. And each yeah, so the, the, inter- the interstitial pieces and connections that, that constitute a full network fabric, basically. Exactly that. And, yeah. and the thing that we end up with in that location, every time we do that, there's a couple of milliseconds of latency added every time we do one of those hops. So from the office to the internet and from the internet out to the home user can be, you know, 12 to 16 hops at that point. Amazon, Google, and as you all have, you know, the pipes are a lot bigger and you end up at their servers a lot, lot faster than you would trying to get back out to a remote work or remote office. So in terms of your sort of 500, you know, megabit kind of general expectation from a a regular sort of business broadband connection how many artists do you think you can comfortably support on that if you wanted in and out i would sort of say you could probably look at sort of 10 maybe you know yeah okay so 10 being a a rough guide yeah yeah okay um really a question for you i think we've we've we talked a lot about the various ways that we can deliver remote workflows um, and some of the different technology. I mean, we haven't talked much about the specific, uh, you know, application or, or end user workflow in and of itself very much. I think, um, you know, our customers do a variety of things, all, all of which are related to content creation for media or entertainment. I mean, are there any particular type of workflows that are especially problematic or that or that can't be facilitated using uh, Teradici or RGS or, or cloud deployments currently? Any particular challenges there? Uh, so, so, so not really. One of the things that we pride ourselves in is not sort of enforcing uh, particular workflows on our clients. So when when you spin up infrastructure in the cloud, uh, you can you can make it appear uh, as similar to your current infrastructure as, as it needs to be. Uh, and in fact, in, an, in a sort of in a hybrid environment where you have some physical infrastructure on premise uh, and some physical infrastructure in the cloud, um, it should not be apparent in any way uh, to an artist as to whether they're connected to a physical workstation or uh, a cloud-based workstation. So 
any anything that you currently do, uh, we can replicate that for you in the cloud. Well, including, say, you know, color grading 4K material, uh, running systems like Flame, for example, that kind of thing. I mean, do they not present special challenges? So, so, so you're correct. If, for example, you're doing anything that involves uh, so, so VR stuff, so virtual reality stuff, where you have to plug a physical headset into a physical workstation. Um, obviously, if the workstation is cloud-based, uh, that's not going to be a possibility. Uh, the other one to watch out for is anything that is uh, color sensitive. So if you're involved in any color sensitive work, color grading for feature films uh, and things like that, um, currently uh, the technology isn't good enough uh, to give you really color accurate uh, representations from the cloud. Um, Lee, uh, over to you on that one for uh, uh, just perhaps some extra comment. I mean, sort of bit depth in terms of color, uh, color sensitive work, um, you know, things like SDI output for, for, for flame or, or, you know, or systems of that kind. I mean, any, one of the limitations that, that revolve around those elements. So all, all inherent streaming protocols are eight bit. So uh, at that point, if you are looking at, you know, normal workflows or you wanted to do, you know, color is, accurately portrayed as in naught to one or naught to two five five, et cetera, and everything that you see on a normal working monitor would be absolutely correct and Aurelio's spot on as soon as we go to a, a higher bit depth workflow. So if we were looking at trying to do resolve grading or we were trying to drive a 10-bit monitor, which you know in a in a color critical workflow you would always want to start driving monitors at a higher bit depth um, than a standard 8-bit connection. This is very prevalent now with HDR workflows. Dolby Vision is a is a 12-bit format that you know would cause a lot of issues. And an and HDR10 or HDR10 Plus both have 10-bit versions of that. So trying to visualize HDR workflows from a cloud scenario is impossible at the minute, especially when we're looking at things like Flame, which would use a video out, as you correctly pointed out, an SDI signal. There are challenges that are yet to be solved. There are in process of being solved as we speak. So there are roadmaps with 10-bit and potentially 12-bit algorithms for streaming pixels um, and have C compression that would allow us to, you know, uh, look at a video signal coming from the cloud on a grade one monitor for those type of workflows. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Um, okay, guys. Well, I think that that probably, um, probably concludes our discussion. I think we've covered, you know, I hope we've covered most of the angles there. Um, I think in summary, we can, we can probably say that you know the technology for for delivering a a pretty comprehensive you know remote working strategy is in place you know give or take a few things that that, that remain out of reach at the moment such as which we've just described i think that concludes our uh, our discussion for this afternoon just want to say thank you to lee uh, and thank you to, uh, to aurelio for for their contributions and their insights there um this podcast will be um will be broadcast on our youtube channel um please follow the link there um, to sign up to our newsletter if, uh, if you'd like to know more about escape technology uh, or remote working. Thank you very much and we'll see you next time.